0: Northridge and Cactus and Chapel and Venue join us right now. Let's all bow together for our time in the Word. Father, thank you for this season that we can celebrate the coming of Jesus into this world and even plumb some of the depths on what that means for us as His followers. And so, God, as we continue to make our way through the very words of Jesus contained in a portion of the Gospel of John this month, I pray that your Holy Spirit might empower our time together, our teaching time, Uh, and Lord, may we be inspired, may we be uh, ready uh, to move together as one into whatever uh, the future might have for us. And that's my prayer, and I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, Amen. amen. Well, Mark Twain, the great humorist, once said that he put a dog and a cat in a cage as an experiment to see if they could get along, and they did. And so he put in a bird, a pig, and a goat, and they too got along fine after a few adjustments. And then he put a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic in, and he said soon there was not a living thing left. (laughs) I love that joke. Somebody once said that in every joke there is 50% truth. And I think in that joke there's a little bit more than even 50% truth. And so let's wrestle with this right now. Uh, Why is it that Christians seem to have such a difficult time attaining unity? And let me be clear. Why is it that we have trouble getting along with each other? Why do we tend to bicker about so many things. Why do we judge each other so harshly? Have you ever noticed this? Why do we even compete from church to church uh, with each other? Uh, Why is it that Christians have a difficult time uniting as one, especially as we saw last week in this series that we live in this world that's not our home and that Jesus wants us to move into shoulder to shoulder, hand to hand, heart heart to heart together as one. What is the deal with this thing called unity? And before we look at the words of Jesus today, and I promise you they're going to be both encouraging and challenging, here is one extremely important kind of precursor or caveat that you and I want to be open to, and it's really important, and that is that both the problem with unity as well as the solution to unity resides in each and every one of us. It's the ironic thing about unity. Unity is about all of us coming together. But what most people don't realize is that when it comes to the problem and the solution, each one of us individually have more choice and power than we could ever realize. In other words, left just to our own devices, each one of us has the capacity to either foster unity or tear down unity. It's really that much of an individual choice. I love this little story of a man who was stranded on a desert island for years on end, like that movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. And after years of being in isolation, eventually a ship came by and rescued him. And as the rescuers came onto the island, they noticed there were three buildings that over the years this gentleman had built. And one of the rescuers said, Well, I get that building. That's obviously your house. What's that second building? And the gentleman said, Well, that's my church. And the guy was kind of touched by that. He built a church. And he said, well, What's the third building? And he said, Well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> See, that's a great joke. You're going to use that this week, I promise you. Because it's so insane. Even all by ourselves, we can disunify, right? Even all by ourselves, we can find something to criticize and eventually break fellowship over. We are that much, have that much choice ourselves. Now, it should not surprise us as we continue in our look at Jesus's longest recorded prayer in John chapter 17, which is our Christmas series here at Scottsdale Bible this year, that Jesus broaches this subject of unity and as usual i'm just going to warn you jesus is going to pull no punches as he delivers up to you and me a cogent challenging very practical and inspirational teaching or theology of oneness and so in our time remaining i want you to notice no less than three things that Jesus teaches you and me about unity or oneness here in these words of his. We're going to look at his words in just a second here, but let's notice the first thing that he teaches us, and it's this. And that is that our unity as followers of him is patterned after the triune God. Did you know that? Our unity as followers of Jesus, whether you go to this church or another church, or even if you don't go to church, but you're a believer in Jesus, is patterned after the triune God. So look with me at how Jesus begins this next section of his prayer. We're going to look at verses 20 to 22. He's praying, as you will remember, to God the Father as God the Son. And notice what he prays. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the original 12 disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Now, first things first, obviously Jesus is switching gears here if you've joined us at all all in this series. Up to this point, he's been praying for his original 12, actually it's 11 disciples because Judas is out of the picture now. But now you will notice that he targets his prayer to all future believers in him, to anyone and everyone who will come to believe in him and follow him down through the ages. And the simple comment I want to make on that, and this is really important for you and I to dial into, is that this will involve billions of people. Amen. I mean, think about it. 2,000 years all different kinds of cultures and all different kinds of settings. I mean, there's 2 billion people today, alive today, who claim some form of Christianity. So Jesus here is lumping all of the future believers together, billions of people, and he essentially prays one thing for us. Only one thing, and he twice repeats it here in his prayer. You caught it. He says that they may all be one, and then he says it again down here in verse 22 that they may be one. That's his prayer for all future followers. You know, only I would do something like this, but you guys know I'm really technical when it comes to the Word of God. You know, every word matters. Jesus taught us that, and and it's inspired by God. And so when I'm doing my study, I I make sure that though I might think what a word means, that I I research it and make sure that it means what it means, especially in the original language. So this week, as you can imagine, I kind of got focused on this word one here O N E. and, And so I decided to do a little bit of research on it in the Greek. And it made me laugh because it's the Greek word ice, not I-C-E, but E-I-S. That's a transliteration from the Greek. And I just looked up the occurrences of this word and what the experts say about it. And I started laughing because I, I use one of the most, you know, scholarly, prestigious lexicons for the Greek language that's around today. It was suggested to me by Dr. Wayne Grudem when I moved here 12 years ago and I bought a copy. And so I want to read for you exactly what the scholars say that this word means in the original language 2,000 years ago when Jesus used it. Here, here's how they define it. One, in contrast to more than one. (laughs) Okay, some of you missed it, let me repeat that. (laughs) It means one in contrast to more than one. So I started laughing because I thought, it ain't complicated. The word means one. And Jesus is praying here that his followers would be so tight, so united that we would be one in contrast to more than one. And again, I don't wanna belabor this, but notice that he also uses that word that I've had some fun with in the past too, the word all. So he says all, the billions of believers down through the ages would be one. Again, I've done this with you before, I looked up that word all, and you know what it literally means? Say it with me, All. all. So it means every single one of us, which is why I said earlier, that individually we have a little bit more power when it comes to unity than we might think. Now, as if this were not enough, because we haven't even gotten to the top of the hill yet, Jesus then adds a very powerful, if not daunting, comparison that we need to spend a few minutes on, because this is really the heart of it all. And and I think you caught it. He likens our unity to that of the Trinity. (laughs) He says that just as the Father and Jesus are in each other, which is a clear reference to the Trinity. We've taught you this before. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in each other. They are one God, but three distinct persons of the Godhead, but all one. It's a mystery. Jesus says that just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, that we as believers are to be one. Now let me quote Jesus here. Even as, just as, the Godhead is one in and with each other. And so don't miss the implication of what Jesus is saying. That just as God is within himself a perfectly happy, content, never bickering, always having each other's back kind of unity. That we as his followers are supposed to have the same kind of oneness. Jesus could going to be more clear. The eternal trinity is the pattern of our unity as followers of Jesus. And it's right at this point where we dare not do a drive-by, that we wrestle with what I'm going to call the elephant in the room. And maybe I'm the only one that feels this, but I'm going to help you feel it right now. And that is that I don't think it would be sacrilegious to ask the question of Jesus, how in the world are we to ever attain that kind of unity? I mean, especially when he matches our unity up against the Trinity. I mean, think about it, folks. Again, we have to wrestle with this. God is perfect. The Trinity is perfect. And so whenever Jesus talked about his relationship with the Father and brought the Spirit into it, and I'll latch on to this, it, by its very nature, the Trinity cannot disagree with itself. It can never break, break rank with, with itself. It's impossible Why? Because the Trinity is an eternally self sufficient, individual threesome, incapable by its very perfection of disunity and division. Jesus made this really clear in all of his teachings. He said over and over again, I and the Father are one. And that oneness, it's a beautiful thing, cannot be separated. Look at it this way. Unity and oneness is as core to the Trinity as wetness is to water, as heat or light is to fire. You cannot separate that. Unity is in the DNA of the Trinity, and it's a perfect unity, and yet, Jesus likens our unity to this. He essentially says, be like that. You know, a simple comparison would be, and all of you have done this, you've never maybe thought of unity in the Trinity like this, but but you've done what I'm about to say. How many of you have ever heard a Christian say that we need to be more like Jesus? Raise your hand if you've ever heard it, all the time. We used to wear those those bracelets, you know, what would Jesus do? And now the big saying is we need to love like Jesus. And I agree with all of that. We do need to do that. But when we say that, I'm not sure we really realize what we're saying. Jay Leno, years ago on The Tonight Show, uh, nailed it. I don't even know why he did this, but right in the middle of his stand-up sketch, he said something that caught my eye. He said, uh, can you imagine being one of Jesus' brothers and having your mother say to you, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? (laughs) And then then Leno looked at the audience and said, he's God, Mom. I mean, that's kind of a hard thing to match up to. And I was proud of Jay Leno for realizing that. Uh, But that's really the heart of it all. When we say that we want our morality, our actions and our feelings and our thoughts to be like Jesus, I get it. That's a wonderful thing to do. Every theologian agrees with that. C.S. Lewis says we need to be little Christs in that way. But do we realize what an incredibly tall order that is? Like a mountain that you'll never completely summit? Because he's perfect and you're not. And similarly, likening our unity to that of the Trinity, I'm telling you, is seemingly unfair and nearly impossible, or is it? I mean, even though this is the heart of Jesus's prayer, as I meditated on it this week, I thought, he has to know what a tall order he, this is. He has to know what a shock this would have been when his original disciples heard this, and yet I don't believe he would ask it of the Father if he didn't have a plan on how to attain it, Right? I don't think Jesus would have ordered this up to the Father if he didn't think that somehow this was attainable and even possible. And so Jesus goes on in his prayer to share with us in a way only Jesus could do precisely how this unity, that this Trinitarian patterned unity can occur among you and me. And I'm going to warn you right now before I give you the point That this is something that flies under the radar of the average Christian today. I hardly ever hear Christians talk about Jesus' solution here. And I'm convinced that's why we're not as unified as we could be. And yet this is the key according to Jesus, to attaining unity. And it's the second thing he shares with us about unity, and here it is, and that is that our unity is grounded in, it's found in, it's attained in our shared experience of God's glory. I hope you never forget this. Our unity is grounded in our shared experience of God's glory, And so once again, let's look at Jesus' words here. I want this time to look again at verse 22, and then we're gonna move on and look at verse 24 and look at how Jesus lays out where and how our unity is to be attained. He says, the glory which you, Father, have given me, I have given to them, meaning the future believers, that they may be one just as we are one, And then he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, those future believers, be with me where I am. I think that's a spiritual thing. I think that's a a, a nestled in faith and trust in Jesus. Be with him as he rules from heaven where he is so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so simply notice, gang, once again, twice repeated, Jesus links our unity to this thing called glory. And he essentially makes clear that when his followers tap into the reality of his glory, when we have a shared experience together of this glory that emits from Jesus, then unity, he makes that very clear, oneness will become a reality, not just a nice theological concept. And so if you're tracking with me at all, and I sure hope you are, the obvious question we need to answer, because I don't think the average Christian can answer this, is what in the world is God's glory? I mean, I hear Christians use that word a lot, you know, glory to God, you know, things like that. Can we define the term? Now, here's the deal, I'm so into God's glory, I I believe it's such an important concept, because it's used all over the New Testament and the Old, that I've done three sermons, in the last 10 years devoted solely to God's glory. I did one in 2009 called The Glory of God. I did one in 2015 when we started uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, Out of John two, I did a sermon simply called Glory. And then two years ago in 2017, I did another sermon in in our series, A Beautiful Mess, out of John 13 called Glory. So you can go back and review what we said about glory, but I want to spend just about four minutes right now uh, reviewing what glory is so that we can talk intelligently about how it becomes a shared experience of our unity. And here's a good, broad, biblical definition of God's glory. It's very broad, but this is the heart of it all. And that is that when you add up all that the Bible says about God's glory, God's glory is the external manifestations of God. It's anything that flows from God. Let me repeat that. The glory of God is the external manifestations of God. It's anything that flows from God. Let me explain. The word glory simply means to shine forth something. And that's what the glor, glor, word glory means, shining forth. And, and so what, what, it, what it's designed to do is, is that something good is supposed to shine forth from either God or a human being, and it's so good, it's so bright, it's so wonderful that it results in praise and worship and adoration, And sometimes glory is used in the Bible to refer to human beings. So when a human being does something really, really good, like an action or something like that, that shines forth and other people see it and they're encouraged by that, they're drawn to that, they might even give praise or adoration for it. So if the word glory, and it does, means to shine forth, now here's what I want you to think about, then all or anything that shines forth from God because he is perfect, is worthy of praise and honor, is his glory, then it would make sense that anytime anything of who God is shines forth, anytime anything springs forth from God's character and essence, it is by definition his glory. And so I love how the pastor theologian John Piper puts it. He says, and I quote, God's glory is the visible splendor of God's manifold perfections so simply put, God's glory is any time something emits forth from him that we can see and experience, whether his words, his actions, his thoughts, whatever it might be, that by definition is his glory and worthy of praise. We'll put this together in a minute, but you have to understand the glory of God. Here would be a great uh, analogy or, or, or example that all of you can relate to, um, How many of you have ever experienced the sun? uh, S U N, raise your hand. How many of you have ever experienced? Come on, raise your hand. Just go with me on this. All of you have. Why? Because this is Arizona and we can't get away from the sun, right? And, And the sun is 93 million miles away. None of you have ever touched the core of the sun. You've actually never touched the sun. The sun is made up of very intense gases. It's a star. So in a very real way, the sun has an essence all to itself that you have never, ever, ever touched and never will experience. But you still experience the sun. Why? Because it emits forth heat and light. And you experience the heat and the light. Could it be that God's glory is the same way? The glory of the Son is in its heat and light. God is a self-contained God, a perfect trinity, self-satisfied for all of eternity, and we have never, no man, the Bible says, has ever entered in to that kind of, of glory that the Father is. But the Father and the Son and the Spirit emit certain things from them, things flow from them, from them, from them to us, And that's what the Bible defines as the glory of God. Anything that shines forth from him that's worthy of praise. And by definition, everything that shines forth from God is worthy of his praise. His joy, his sadness, his happiness, watch this, even his anger is his glory, which is why the prophets revered God even when he was mad, because it's all his glory. Now, with this understanding, I have taught you in the past that once you understand this, there are many ways the Bible tells us that God shows us his glory. He shows us his glory in creation. You go for a hike in the McDowells or up to the Grand Tetons and man, you're just lost in creation or a beautiful sunset. That's the glory of God. He shows us his glory in the church. He shows us his glory in his word. He shows us his glory in so many ways and yet... What Jesus is getting at here in John 17 and what the New Testament as a whole makes so very clear, now this is the mountaintop of it all, is that one of the primary ways, in fact, the primary way in this certain season of the world we're living in right now, that God has displayed his glory is in the person, the work, and the words of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Look at how Jesus would say this in John 17. Let's review this, because now you're going to understand it. He says, the glory, the radiance that comes forth from God, the glory which you, Father, have given me. So I came to this earth, and now I'm emitting the glory of God. I have given to them. And then he says in verse 24 that they may see my glory. And this is why I say, when we have a shared experience of seeing and experience the glory of God through Jesus, he says very clearly, that's the basis of the unity that I want for you. But let's just be clear that he is the centerpiece of God's glory. Look at how the book of Hebrews would say it as it opens up the whole book. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in other words, God used all sorts of ways to communicate with us, in these last days, the days we're in right now, He has spoken to us in his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now here it is. And he is the radiance of his, say it with me, glory. He is the glory of God. He is how we experience God. And so put it all together. The glory is in Jesus. This is how we see God and know what he is like. And it's in our shared experience together of Jesus and his glory that we find our unity. And there's only one more question that we need to ask and answer before we very practically put this together for what this means for us today. And I wanna be very clear here. Exactly what is it that we share together about Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, lots of people say they believe in Jesus. A lot of people are even into Jesus. And what is it exactly are the boundary lines, if you will, for what we share together in Jesus? Here it is, and this is biblically right on. The glory of God in Jesus is found in the words of Jesus that are truth, in the abiding presence that he has for us, in his power and activity among us, and in his love that he exhibits toward us. And some of you are going, I know I said that slow, but I missed it. Okay, look up here on the screen. It's found in his truth, in his presence, in his power, and in his love. Don't ever forget this. What is it that we share together? What's the glory that emits forth from this Jesus that we believe in? Truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then it's found in his presence. He says in Matthew 28, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's found in his power. Remember this in Matthew, where he said that if you have the faith of a mustard seed, Man, you can move mountains. And so it's found in the power that he does among us. And then certainly it's found in his love. John 13, he he says, uh, the love that I've given to you, now you show to each other. And, and, And so these things we experience together and in them we share in his glory and it's in these that we are to find our unity. That's the clear teaching of Jesus here in John 17. It's our best chance of ever being one just as the Trinity is one. Now, I wanna put this all together and and, and I need you to wrestle with me with something here because I said earlier that there's an elephant in the room, there's actually two (laughs) elephants in the room. we dealt with one earlier, that's the whole idea of how in the world can we be like the Trinity when it comes to our unity? We found that we can, it's found in the shared experience of his glory among us. But the second elephant in the room, and most of you will relate to this, is this. And I want to be careful how I say it, so just bear with me here a second. One of the things I love about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we've been around for almost 60 years as a church here in the valley. We are known for being a strong Bible teaching church, a rather large church that has a lot of mature believers. And I love that about our church. And though we're getting younger and hired a lot of younger pastors and all that, we still have a lot of very mature believers. So here's my point. I'm guessing that up to this point, save for maybe that little lesson on the glory aspect, almost everything that I've said you guys have heard before. In other words, you know that that our unity is important. You know it's even patterned after the Trinity because Jesus said that. You know that it's found in Jesus. And again, you might not have equated to his glory, but now you do, and and it's found in what comes forth from Jesus. So my question is simply this because this is really life-changing stuff. I I mean, we're talking about Trinitarian patterned, glory-empowered unity that should like forever change us. My question is this. The elephant in the room is this. What's holding us back? (laughs) I, I mean, if we know this, if we've known it for a long time, if some of you are so bored right now that you're tempted to think of lunch or the football game or whatever it is you might be thinking of, then why is it that we still bicker? Why is it that we are still so critical? Why is it that we are still having trouble at times, finding unity, and if not within our church, because we're doing pretty good right now, at least with other believers? But why is it that the world looks at us and they don't see unity, they see division? If we know this, if this is such a powerful thing, what is it that holds us back? So there I am sitting in my home office this week and I'm churning over this stuff and I'm trying to think, What God, what is it? What is it that, that stops us? If, we, if this is such good stuff and it is, what gives? And, and I thought of a bunch of things. I think the answer is complex, but, but I narrowed it down to a couple of things that I want to challenge you with today. And I'll warn you, these things are a little bit biting. Uh, Somebody came up last night and said, I I don't buy it. And I said, well, you're wrong, but chew on it, you know. And so uh, I didn't say that because that would be disunifying. That would not be a unity thing. So I did not say that. I I loved him in the name of Jesus and and tried to reason with him. But, But here they are. Here's what I think is happening among us. And that's that we fail to keep the main thing the main thing. And I'll define that in a second here. And then even worse, we link our unity to lesser ideas or ideals. In other words, very simply, here's what I'm saying. I think we add a bunch of things to our bond of unity, and in so doing, we fail to keep the main thing the main thing, and then we subtract or delete a bunch of things and settle for lesser things. So between addition and subtraction, we completely mess up this idea of glory and the truth, the power, the presence, and the love of Jesus among us. I want you to think first about that idea of just failing to keep the main thing the main thing. (laughs) And again, this is inarguable what I'm about to say, so let's just have a little bit of fun with it. Years ago, I I developed a little phrase that I use in my life, and that is that I make a distinction between what I call FBIs and non-FBIs. What's an FBI? An FBI is a fellowship-breaking issue. So an FBI is something so important to the heart of God that if we do not agree on it, it's gonna be very hard for us to have fellowship together. It would be that disunifying type of thing. A non-FBI would be a non-fellowship breaking unit that if you and I disagree on it, even though the Bible broaches the subject, there might be disagreement. We can disagree, but, but agree to disagree and not break fellowship. Here's the problem with that. Everybody loves that concept. Every time I've taught it, people go, "Oh, I really like that, FBIs and non-FBIs. The problem is, our lists tend to be different. And, And so here's the deal for me, and I've been doing this for almost 40 years. My FBI list is relatively short, amen? I'm gonna give it to you here in just a second. So the things that I will break fellowship over are critical, important, biblical things, but it ain't a long list, Conversely, my list of non-FBI things is a long list. I think the problem with unity is that people add a bunch of things to this FBI list and they take too much away from the non-FBI list. Let me wade into dangerous waters and share mine with you. Uh, On an FBI list, here's where I probably would not be able to have unity with you. Now, I wanna be very clear. Even if I don't have unity with you, I still love you. Did you hear that clear enough? I do. I was with people this week who, whom I love deeply. We, we don't agree on some of the things we we'll want to share, so I can't really have you know, biblical unity with them, but I love them, and they feel that from me. So this isn't about love. It's just about unity. Here's, here's what's on that list. The literal resurrection of Jesus. So if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, that it never happened, that he never rose from the grave, that we're still stuck in our sins, that's pretty core to Christianity, the deity of Jesus. If you deny that he is the eternal son of God, come to this earth to save us. It's going to be hard for me to find unity with you. That's pretty core to our understanding of Jesus. The Bible as the authoritative word of God. I, I, again, we can, we can disagree on exactly how it's the word of God. You know what I'm talking about there. But, 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 but the, the, the baseline that it is our authority as the word of God is pretty core, it's core to our unity. And then I would add the atonement of Jesus. The fact that he came to atone for our sins, however you would even define that, there's different ways that we might look at that, but just the idea of the atonement is very critical. And I would add any other issue that directly, directly affects the salvation of this world and our souls. That's the core of Christianity, and those are issues that if we don't agree on, again, I will love you, I promise I will, to my best of my ability, I love everybody, but we probably won't have you know, biblical unity. Now, here's my list of non-FBI's, and this is what gets me in trouble. This is where somebody came up last night, I don't agree with any of those. Well, I didn't even tell you what I think on them, I'm just telling you these are the issues that I have opinions on, very strong opinions on, quite frankly, very right opinions on, but <laughs> I will admit, that they are not worth breaking fellowship over. You ready for this list? I'm gonna whip through it kind of fast. Eschatological views, meaning views of the end times. Differing views of sovereignty and free will, meaning Calvinist or Arminian. Differences in how we view the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Differing social and political views, meaning conservative or liberal. Differing philosophies of ministry, meaning traditional or non-traditional. Differing views of creation and how precisely it happened. The role of women in ministry. Differing views of the freedoms, That we talk about around here, like drinking and dancing and other things like that. And I could go on and on. You need to know that those are issues that though I have strong opinions on, I think the Bible speaks to every one of these, that I understand they're debatable. And I will not break fellowship over those issues. And the simple reason is this, Jesus has told me not to. Jesus has said that he prays one thing for us as believers, that we would be one. And don't let anything get in the way of that. And how do you find it? In the shared experience of his glory. His truth, his power, his presence, his love. And again, I know it's tricky because some of you would say, well, you see, on that list you just went through right now, those are found in the Bible, and that's truth. So that comes forth from Jesus. You have to be careful here. And let me be very clear with you. That's your interpretation of truth, amen? It's yours, and I love that you have it. I love the fact that our church is so biblically centered and focused that we have opinions on these things. Just remember that in 2,000 years of theological inquiry, people have disagreed greatly over these things, and yet we can still have fellowship. Fellowship quick story. I was with a a dear friend this week, Tom Schrader's son-in-law. Tom Schrader passed away, as you guys know, just about a year ago. And and Tom was such a dear friend of his church. He handed off his 10 campus church to his son-in-law a few years before that, Tyler Johnson. And Tyler and I are dear friends. And I love getting with the guy. He's probably one of the most gifted young evangelicals in this town. He's barely 40 years old. And he's pastoring just, you know, 10 campuses, an amazing church called Redemption Church that's reaching all these young people. And it's just an amazing thing to see. I always marvel when I get with Tyler because we agree, obviously, on all the FBI's. He agrees with the literal resurrection of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. But when it comes to a lot of the other issues, it's like he's Richie Cunningham and I'm the Fonz. I mean, it's it's that divergent. Or maybe I'm Richie Cunningham and he's the Fonz because he's more cool than I am. But but we just we we don't even go down that road as my dad would say we just need to walk sensitively around the issues because you know he and I just wouldn't see eye to eye on on so many of those things. And yet I walk away from every time with him and I get weepy just thinking about this. I miss his dad a lot or his father-in-law. I just love the guy. I respect him, I care for him, even though he's wrong on every one of those issues. I I I love him to death. I'm joking. And, and I think he's amazing. And, and it just reminds me to keep the main thing the main thing. And, and then to not settle for lesser ideals. Again, real quickly on this one because we're running out of time fast. But one of the things that drives me nuts about unity, and I want to be careful how I say this because we do this. Have you ever noticed that Christians get really excited about their church and find their unity in certain things about their church? Have you ever noticed that? That's not bad. I mean, we have mission statements as church and vision statements as church. And, you know, you might like the worship at your church or the preacher at your church or the programs at your church and all that. But, but here's where the danger comes in. Um, none of those are directly the glory. They're a result of the glory, but the glory comes in so many different forms. Amen. I, I mean, is there glory in more liturgical churches than Scottsdale Bible Church right now? Yes or no? Yeah, there are. Is there glory in a, in a little underground church in China right now, yes or no? Yes. Does that church look radically different than Scottsdale Bible Church? Yes. So we have to be careful as we get excited about what God is doing here to, to not confuse some of the outward things that our church does that you happen to like as the bond of our unity. They're not. Don't say to somebody, come to our church because it's better than your church. <laughs> That, that's a terrible thing to say. Now, if somebody's looking for a church, then certainly invite them and, and, and all that. I'm not saying don't do that. But, but our unity is not, believe it or not, in the mission statement of Scottsdale Bible Church or in your small group or in your Sunday school class or even in our wonderful band or the traditional worship at the chapel or whatever. We just do that uh, to try to foster worship and prayer and relationship and all the things we do. The glory is in Jesus. The bond is in Jesus. And I love how Russ Taft said it years ago. He said, if you believe in Jesus, you belong to me, simply put. And so remember that. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't link your unity to lesser ideas. You get the idea. Our Trinitarian patterned unity is found in a glory-empowered relationship with Jesus that we share together. Now, we're fast out of time. We have just a few minutes left, and it is football season. So let's wrap up by noting a third and final thing Jesus shares with us about unity here. And I know I've been saying this all day, because you can tell this, this excites me, and, but this third one's huge. In fact, it, it's the mountaintop. It's the heart of it all. It's why Jesus prayed this prayer, and it's this, that he teaches us our unity results in a profound witness to the world. So look with me one last time today at Jesus's prayer and you're gonna see what I mean. Look at verses 21 and 23. He says that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, here it is, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, he repeats it again, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me And loved me, or loved them even as you love me. So, twice repeated here again, Jesus is making a point. Our unity and oneness is core to our witness to a lost and dying world. And the logic of Jesus is flawless. Don't miss the logic here. He's essentially saying this, and this is so hard-hitting and challenging, but it's good. He says, if the Trinity of God, remember point one, is not strong enough to motivate you and me toward unity, and if the glory of God in Jesus, remember point two, is not a strong enough power for you and me to find our, our unity within, then he's simply saying, how in the world are they ever gonna believe that Jesus is real? In other words, they're looking at you and me, They don't know Jesus. They don't even believe in Jesus. He's not even on their radar in this post-Christian, highly secular society that we live in. And so as I've said before, you might be the only epistle that somebody ever reads. You might be the only Jesus somebody ever sees. And Jesus' point is clear. If they don't see him in us, if they don't see the love, the truth, the power, the presence in us, then they're never gonna be drawn to him. Which is why I said earlier, and I'm not trying to harp on you, it's just true. A lot of us have more power than we could ever imagine. <laughs> Some of you are thinking here today, and I know how you think. You're thinking, well, I'm just one person. We've got thousands of people here, you know, and yeah, I'm kind of cynic anyways, you know, and a critic and all that. So what does it really matter? <laughs> it matters greatly. <laughs> it, because trust me, I've been doing this for long enough that, that I know it just takes a few. just takes a few bad apples to ruin that whole bushel. Amen? It does. And so don't be that bad apple. Don't be that curmudgeon. You know, I've noticed about us as we get older, tell me this isn't true. It's really true. Kim and I pray about this all the time for our own lives. I've noticed that people as they get older, even either get more angry or they get more joyful. Amen. They rarely stay the same. And so, again, I love being around older people, but the second I sense that, you know, they're just like Fox News angry, like when I sense that, <laughs> see, I'm gonna get an email about that. It's not that Fox News is angry. It's just that some of you get angry when you watch it. That's what I meant. <laughs> but when I sense, and I, by the way, I kind of like Fox News. But anyways, I, I just, <laughs> when I sense anger in people, I, I, here's my point. I, I have to love you, and I do, because I'm your pastor, but I'm not drawn to you when you're like that. Conversely, when you're joyful, when you have the joy of the Lord in you, and when the Holy Spirit is just rising up in you, even in the midst of this cruddy culture with joy that comes from him, man, am I drawn to you, and I want to be around you. And here's my point. I'm your pastor, for crying out loud. I'm an easy mark. Imagine your neighbor. Imagine your service provider. Imagine your friend. I had a service provider say to me just the other day, and again, it's, I'm not bloating here. I'm not, you know, I'm not bragging. It's just that, he said to me, you're the nicest person to me out of almost all my clients. And he said, because you invite me in, you ask me if I need to use the bathroom, you give me a Coke every time I'm here. And I, and I thought to myself, well, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to shower the love of Jesus on those around us through hospitality, through mercy, through kindness, through teaching, through, through warning? I mean, all the different ways we do it. But this guy, I mean, I've ministered, he's not a believer, I've ministered to him a ton. In fact, the other day he told me he hates his job. And I said, well, there's only one thing to do about that. Let's pray right now. And I, and I prayed with him. And, and my point is, is that, I mean, I got my issues, but, but I try hard to make sure the love of God in Christ Jesus is what oozes out of me. And, and let's keep the other stuff for the dog. Let's keep the other stuff at bay. Let's keep the other stuff, uh, not where it might ruin our witness. Jesus wants us unified. He wants us as one. So that the world may know. And here's my last thought. And, and, and again, I'm gonna sound a little bit by like Arnold Schwarzenegger right now, but I just mean this because I know the Holy Spirit. You can do this. <laughs> you can do it. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can engage in Trinitarian patterned, glory empowered, witness producing unity. You're gonna have to forgive those around you. You don't wanna forgive You're going to have to start to be with Christians that you don't want to be with. You might as well practice now because they're going to be in heaven with you. So, you know, you might as well do it now. You're going to have to start to be more patient, more kind, less critical, more the befitting follower of Jesus that he wants you to be. But here's the good news. As you do that, you're going to see God move and breathe and act in and through your world like you've never seen Because Jesus only had one prayer for all those future believers, that we'd be one, just as he and the Father are one. Father, thank you for this amazing teaching of your son. Thank you that it comes at a timely uh, point here at Christmas, that as we move into this joyful holiday, celebrating the birth of Jesus, that, Lord, we can capitalize on that joy and start to attach some unity to it. And, Lord, though I might feel like I've been hard on some of these folks here today, I'm so proud of Scottsdale Bible in so many ways. It, we've come very far. There's a palpable sense of unity here, and I, and, I, and I would hope and believe it's tied to your grace, that it's tied to your glory that we experience in Jesus. And so, Lord, keep that flowing among us. And, Lord, help us to catch our spirits when we're tempted to get overly critical or mean-spirited. God, catch us and keep us focused on your son. And may the glory drive us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.